0: Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting,
1: fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning. This is Terry Wickstrom, and I'm back in the studio. It seems like I haven't been here for a month, and I think that's about right. In fact, we were, uh, we had, uh, we had a guest host uh, fill in for us, Brad Peterson filled in. Well, we were in iCast, and then we had two remotes, so we got to see the golf guys today. It's the first time I got to talk to them, like, it's been about six months. We'll see you, Jerry. Yep, yeah, but good to be back here. We got a full slate for you today of things to do. We're gonna We're going to talk some fishing. We're going to talk some hunting. Got some unique things to talk about. Before we get to our first segment, I do want to remind you to follow us on uh Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. And the reason for that is you're going to find out that we um that we a lot of what goes on in this show ends up on our Facebook page either when it's coming up or when after it's uh for instance uh if I I'm, we're going to do a tackle talk later today, that'll be posted on Facebook so you can go back and listen to it again. My columns in the Denver Post, every time a new column comes out, which is once a week. You'll see a link to that column on my Facebook page. If we're having something special going on with the show, if we're on remote, you'll see that on the Facebook page. And then we get some information from a lot of our contributors, and we try to put that up there. Now, we don't post five, six times a day. We only post once or twice a day, but we try to make it pertinent. So we really want you to follow Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. We do contests around what we do on Facebook. We're going to have some more coming up. We're working on some. So we will make that worth your while to go and uh, follow or like Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. So let's go right to the phones now and joining us, uh, somebody who's been, gosh, a longtime contributor to this show. He, he's a guest host. He fills in for us at times. Chad, I think it's been over a decade since you started working on the show or contributing to the show.
2: Yeah, you know, it's been a it's been a fun decade. I remember you coming into Sportsman's Royale looking for someone to do a fishing report and I happened to be the fishing guide. So yeah. uh it's funny how that all works and here we are ten years later and I'm still on the lake. <laughs> yeah.
1: And we are and of course this is Chad Lachance from Fishful Thinker. You see his television show. We we aired together on altitude for many, many years. You you're still there of course and also where all where all can people find your show now, Chad?
2: Uh, well, yeah, obviously on altitude, like you just mentioned, on 9:30 Saturday mornings, and then uh, rerunning throughout the week as well. And then on World Fishing Network, in uh, in the fourth quarter, we'll be on uh, World Fishing Network again. And then same as you, Terry, they can find uh, about oh, I think there's seven or eight seasons of Fishful Thinker on My Outdoor TV uh that you can go to you can stream those or download them it's myoutdoortv.com. tv.com you can get the app and uh and same as you can get your shows you can get my shows and uh like 250 other other different uh titles so good content there as well.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I have I think 40 episodes up on my outdoor tv. We'll probably put some more up eventually. Um eventually I'd like to have about 100 episodes up there but We'll see how that's going. In fact, the My Outdoor TV are going to come on with us on the radio show in the second half of August, and it's kind of like the Netflix of uh, outdoor television, as Chad was alluding to, and you can catch not only Chad and I, but a number of the big-name hunting and fishing personalities shows up there with past shows, and it's really neat. The neat things, you can download them and take them with you. Hey, Chad, you know, a couple things I want to talk to you about today. One is... I know you just got a brand new boat. In fact, the new model years will just be showing up or are just showing up. And, of course, you run a Ranger boat. And you and I were talking on the phone this week, and you said you were getting it ready because you had a big uh, television shoot coming up uh, Monday or Tuesday. We'll talk more about that later. But um, I thought, you know... New model year's coming out. There's some good buys. We're getting in the fall. A lot of people are going to be buying boats because it is a great time to buy a boat. But I think a lot of fishermen, they they struggle sometimes. And how do you get it ready? I know you got to get yours ready. So what's the process? What do you go through getting ready when you only have a couple days? And what do you need on the boat? And what are your priorities?
2: Well, you know, for me, just for the record, it's a full day to get moved into my new boat. And, um, and, and obviously I make my living in my boat. So mine might be a little tougher than some guys, but I've also do it once a year. So I've had a more practice at it. And it's a, it's an eight hour day to get everything together in the boat. And for me, it starts with all the required stuff. You know, what do I have to have in the boat that doesn't have anything to do with necessarily catching fish? So obviously that's the, the, life jackets and the throwables and things like that i carry i carry four life jackets in the boat all the time my boat's rated to have four people i carry two inflatables and two traditional life jackets if it's cold out i wear the the uh, traditionals if it's nice out like uh today then i'll wear an inflatable jacket but i carry four life jackets and a throwable Another thing I think you have to have all the time is a first aid kit in the boat. Um, You know, it's not maybe state required, but I've been in boats too much and seen too many hooks that needed to be pulled or cuts or whatever, sunburns, bee stings, whatever. So I carry a first aid kit in the boat all the time. Um, and then, also all the paperwork that you need to have. I put together a ziploc bag it 's got a photocopy of my driver 's license it 's got a photocopy of my fishing license it 's got all my boat requisite information on an emergency numbers uh, insurance card everything 's in the boat so that in one you know clean compartment i 've got everything I need as far as that goes. Uh, the other thing i do is i go through and i figure out what the key sizes of all the tools i might need to work on the obvious stuff you know to change the prop out and to maybe change a trolling motor prop things like that and i put together my toolkit and each boat's slightly different so my toolkit changes so i put a toolkit in the boat as well so that i'm ready to go with that at any given time uh some sunscreen spare towels you know some some minor things like that i, I also think it's really important to have rope. I carry a hundred foot of really good quality rope in case I need to tow someone or someone needs to be towed. Uh, and then a couple of dock lines as well. So that's the most important stuff to me. And then then we can start talking about fishing
1: tackle. Well, yeah, and then we talk about. Of course, we can talk about all the tackle we put in a boat, but there's other things too. And I I don't know if the dealer mounts your electronics and things, but you know, getting that done properly, getting your electronics. Where do you like? I mean, I, I'm sure you have at least two sets of electronics in the boat. Usually one at the council for most people, and one up by their front trolling motor. Do you go beyond that, or what? What do you think is necessary?
2: Well, uh, i say the best electronics you can afford are what's necessary because the older I get, the more I fish, the more places I fish, the more I've learned to rely on my electronics. I do just carry uh, two, two head units in the boat. So I've got one. I've got an HTF-12, which is a 12-inch unit on the bow, and I've got a 9-inch unit on the dash. And the reason I have the bigger unit on the bow of the boat, which is opposite of most people— I do that because you're standing, and it's farther away, and I'm not getting any younger, as you know. And so the farther away that unit is from you, the bigger it needs to be to be able to see it. So I have the 12-inch unit on the front of the boat, and the fish that we have caught this morning, we picked off off the grass, spotted them on the grass in 20 feet of water and dropped. So uh, very, very important. I also believe that if at all possible, make sure you can get GPS as well. I mean, yeah, you can get by with hand, handheld or things like that, but I mean, I live and die by GPS more than I more than you'd ever think you would. And so, twin sonar units and, and GPS on them is a is a, in my mind a bare minimum for a modern fishing boat. Unless it's you know like a 14 footer or something like that, then you can probably get by with just one one fish finder GPS combo.
1: Yeah, well, I agree too. I have I've always for decades have had two, at least two on my boat, and. We uh, we have one on the console and one up on the trolling motor. And it isn't just that sometimes I'm standing on the trolling motor up front and I'm looking at that one, and sometimes I'm in the console, and I need good electronics in both places. couple points. You mentioned GPS. I don't throw marker buoys out nearly as much as I used to. I will occasionally, but my marker buoy, the GPS has gotten so accurate. It's typically a waypoint on my GPS that I will see on my screen and keep the boat over so that I can see that. And I need to be able to have that GPS on the front too. The other thing, a great example of having two uh, units on the boat is Karen and I were out about a week or so ago fishing smallmouth bass at Horsetooth. We found them out a, on a drop that went from about, I'd say, eight, nine feet down to about 18 feet. And then it dropped off in the deeper water. But by having by having both electronics, I could tell Karen and I could talk to each other. She was on the back of the boat. I was in the front and one transducer on each end. Well, that's 20 feet apart. And so I could say, hey, I'm right up here on 10 feet. And she could say, I'm on 17. So we knew exactly where we were positioned and where we were going to fish and which way to cast.
2: Yeah, that's a really good system. And it's the new, I've got the G S carbon unit, and it's five different the same finder. so. I can have the transducer in the back of the boat, uh, and the transducer on the trolling motor both displaying at the same time and, and, and show me, you know, two images. So I from the bow of the boat I even know what's going on at the back. Of the boat if I do that. So the fish finders have gotten good. It's amazing. And the flip side of that is you can spend a lot less money than you used to have to spend to get most of these features. I mean, this might be latest and greatest, but you can get like a hook unit or an elite unit for much, much less money and it'll do 90% of what these will do. Screens might be smaller, or, you know, some of the bells and whistles might be gone, but it'll certainly show you bottom contours and densities and temperatures and, and, and obviously fish in the water column as well. So you don't have to spend a ton, but I, I recommend getting the best electronics you can get and keeping them updated.
1: You know, there's a lot we could talk about on Rigging a Boat, and maybe someday I'll have you come in studio, and we'll really go through it. And, you know, folks, if you really have some questions, send it into our Ask the Expert. You know, we have you send your outdoor question, whether it's fishing, hunting, boating, camping, outdoor cooking. Send it to TerryWickstromOutdoors at gmail.com. And if we answer your question on the air with one of the experts, sometimes that expert might be Chad. It might be somebody from Sportsman. But if we answer it on the air, you get a $25 gift card just for sending it in. And I think it gives you a chance and tells us the kind of things you want to know. Chad, there's so much more we could talk about rigging a boat, but I want to take the last few minutes and talk a little bit about what's going on fishing-wise because I know you've been on the water. You know, we went through, and I published this in the Denver Post, and we covered it here, and then we did some follow-up. In fact, we had Al Linder on following up. We went through the summer peak, and now as the summer peak was changing, now if you're in a, a stable lake like maybe Cherry Creek, you can kind of pattern the fish. But now we're going to see another phenomenon a phenomena on the lakes up and down the front range, and we're going to see falling water. How does that change your approach?
2: Yeah, we are definitely seeing that at this point. Horse tooth dropping the better part of a foot a day right now, and uh, that just happened a few days ago. It just started dropping. So uh that keeps first of all it keeps anglers honest but the, the thing is you can't panic on it uh it basically keeps fish moving out around immediate access to deep water that doesn't mean the fish maybe are deep but they want to be close to deep water so i start vacating the backs of pockets for the most part i stay away from big flats when the waters dropping. and i like to have immediate access to deep water and uh and that way the fish can move up on a shallow bank and do you know do some feeding in the riparian zone or something like that and then pull back out and spend. The other thing to keep in mind is it keeps moving a lot. So where you caught them yesterday might be completely different today. As the water moves, you know, pulls out, the fish will basically move with the water. So I like Big, long tapering points and offshore stuff if I can. Offshore humps being ideal. Uh, you know, places like Chatfield have have all the big humps on them. At uh, Trade Creek, although the water doesn't fluctuate a ton there, the fish still gravitate to them. So when you get where the water does fluctuate a bunch, it makes a huge difference. So from now on, the rest of the year, at a place like Horsute, has the waterfalls. I'll focus on major offshore structural elements and and big points, things like that, as opposed to the flats.
1: Well, and what happens is instinctively these fish don't want to get trapped in something that might lose its water and not get out. And so over they've they've evolved to instinctively move out. The other thing that you mentioned, a lot of offshore, a lot of humps and stuff, what you'll also see is a lot of those fish that were pinned to the shallow structure won't go far, but they'll suspend. I've seen so many times when fish we were catching in 5 to 10 feet of water on shallow structure, the water starts to drop. They're, they don't go necessarily down a lot, but they move out and they suspend off of that. Like you said, they either move in to feed or they may feed on suspending bait fish.
2: Well, and that's what's going on right in front of my boat as we speak. As soon as we get off the boat and catch one, they're uh, they're they're busting 18, eighteen nineteen feet of water. There's a small hump in there and there's fish circling around there. Now, in about every two or three minutes, one of them comes to the top. And uh, and so, yeah, they're suspended for sure, and like you said, they're on suspended bait fish. Uh, where I'm sitting now, there's a bunch of blues on the bank, yards behind me, just caught one right there. And then you get out of here and on this hump where I can't, so that better reset, and there's fish out here as well. And one thing to keep in mind this time of year, there's lots of different bait in the, in the system, no matter where you fish. And, you know, some of them might be feeding on smell or shad, suspended out in deep water, and some of them might, Bluegill suspended the drop off right here so you know you've got options
1: all right i've got to let you go maybe 30 seconds if you were going fishing this afternoon well you are fishing today but if you were if somebody wanted to go fishing this afternoon or tomorrow up and down the front range where would you send them or even the mountains what would you do
2: well the mountains are fishing fantastic so i think that's the key thing the rivers are in prime shape right now and so if you if you're a river guy this is a great time to hit the rivers but you know i like the reservoirs and so like walleyes return I know well. I know horses well. so if I'm a boat I'm going to one of the reservoirs for sure whichever one is my favorite because they're all fishing well and then the, if I don't have a boat then I'm probably going pond fishing and I'm certainly going topwater fishing if I do that
1: all right Chad we gotta let you go get you back on real soon thanks for joining us
2: all right thanks Dave.
1: that's Chad Lachance Terry from Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoke Salmon from the Honey Smoke Fish Company the secret is in the fire Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun po- Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. We are going to go right to the phones, and joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Michelle Cowardin. Did I pronounce that right? Uh Cowardin. Cowardin. Okay. I forgot to ask you. You've been on before. you think I'd remember, but at my age, my memory's good. It's just not very long. But... <laughs> Hey, Michelle, you're coming on to talk about a project that you and I talked about, gosh, it must be going on a couple of years ago at the start of this project, or maybe a year ago when it was just getting in the finishing stages. And and that was along uh, uh, State Highway 9, and there had been a, just an inordinate amount of vehicle collisions and interaction with wildlife there. So tell us about the project.
3: Yeah, we last talked in November 2015, and it was, CDOT was just kind of, finishing up phase one of the construction, and um, the project happened on State Highway 9 south of Kremling on a a ten-and-a-half-mile stretch, and this is kind of a notorious stretch of highway over here known for a lot of wildlife vehicle collisions, and over the last 10 years prior to the mitigation features that were put in, we recorded over 650 wildlife vehicle collisions, which means not only you know 650 wildlife that were hit by cars but people that were having you know in accidents potentially with injuries and property damage. And so yeah in 2016 C. finished construction on um seven large wildlife crossing structures. Two of those were wildlife under overpasses, our first two overpasses in the state of Colorado and five large wildlife underpasses along with several small culverts.
1: And okay, and so, and this was a joint effort with Parks and Wildlife and and Cdot, wasn't it?
3: Well, Cdot was the primary lead, and um, a lot of the funding came from a lot of other public and private donate donations and funders. And so, there's a local ranch that spearheaded a lot of the efforts and a lot of the funding opportunity. Um, Grand County gave a large sum of money, and. Uh, Summit County and some of the other local communities also provided funds. And then they received a lot of funding from just private people that made donations. And so it was really a a partnership between a lot of different entities in the state.
1: Well, and people will say, well, you put in these crossings, overpasses and underpasses. Well, what makes you think the animals will use them? Well, there was more to it than that. You also put barriers that directed them to those crossings, didn't you?
3: Yeah, you really need to use wildlife fencing to direct the animals to the crossing structures when you do these types of things. So along the entire 10 miles on both sides of the highway, there's an 8-foot-high wildlife fence. And then in addition, at any driveway or road, there's a, a double cattle guard, which we call a deer guard, so animals can't just walk onto the highway. And then we also built a large number of escape ramps. You'll drive the highway, and you'll see these large mounds of dirt and that's so if animals, deer and elk and moose get on the highway, they have a way to run up on these ramps and they can jump off and get to safety. Right. So, yeah, it had a lot of features included.
1: Yeah, I mean it was really well designed. And now, how long has that have been? Has it been really operational?
3: Since December 2016 is when it was completed.
1: And are we seeing? Um, what are we seeing? The results? Has the, can you call it a success?
3: Yeah, I think we can call it a success. We're doing a five-year study, and so you know we kind of want to wait to see what happens at the end of that five years. But in just the um, this first winter when the entire project was completed, we saw an 87% reduction in wildlife vehicle collisions. And what that means is, on average, the five-year average prior to construction was 60 animals hit along the highway, and that would range from 40 to 100. But on average, we had about 60 hit each year. And this first winter with the entire project completed, we only had eight animals hit on the highway. And so we think that's a that's a huge success. Um, and we're hoping to see that number decrease as the animals find those crossing structures and get more used to crossing at the structures.
1: No, I think it's. I've you sent me the figures, and I, I was asking facetiously because to me it looks like it's just a tremendous success. I mean, it was. It's almost like a 90% reduction, and that's not only saving our wildlife, but it's making us such so much of a safer drive for people. I mean, I can imagine driving that stretch at night when the deer and elk were out was just, you know, almost uh, white knuckles.
3: It was, and then you add black ice and no shoulder on the highway, and it was a, you know, it was a dangerous drive in the wintertime. I mean, CDOT's also done a lot of road improvements to that stretch of highway to make it safer for motorists.
1: Now you'll be monitoring this. I believe you've got cameras and things up there, so you really are going to monitor this closely over the next period of time.
3: Yeah, we're doing um, a lot of different monitoring techniques, and we're also doing a we count wildlife carcasses along the highway. We have some partners that are helping us. With that and over the next 5 years through 2020 um we'll be observing that information and uh reporting out that information. C. and CPW both have websites on the project and C. or CPW has a website with our report and also some great videos if people want to go and get more information on State Highway 9.
1: All right. Well, Michelle, thank you for joining us. I think this is a great project. It's been kind of fun to be talking to you over the development and see the success, and I'm sure hopefully we'll see more of these type of projects in other areas.
3: Yeah, that's the hope. CDOT and CPW are really partnering together on some uh, west slope studies that we're looking at where we can prioritize where these projects might go in the future. Uh, We've co-hosted with the Fish and Wildlife Service also our first wildlife and transportation summit where we invited a number of partners and entities to talk about these types of projects. The biggest limitation is the funding, and so trying to come up with creative ways to fund these projects to make our highways safe safer, um, but also allow that connectivity and permeability for wildlife is our next big kind of hurdle and pro- uh, work.
1: All right, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. The great great information.
3: Great, thanks for having me, Terry. You,
1: you bet. That's Michelle from Parks and Wildlife. Let's go. Thank you. Right back to the phones and joining us, as he does every week at this time, we have Ray from Adventure Camper. Good morning, Ray. Hi, Terry. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing well, and I think it's going to turn out to be a great day, but we had a little drizzle and things. And I was thinking, you know, this is the kind of day when you wake up and you're out camping, especially if you're in a nice, comfortable camper like you guys have. And you kind of have that extra cup of coffee, and you kind of just you just Just feel it, it and and you know, and you're comfortable, you and you know you got a good day ahead of you, but you don't have to rush out into the weather. You know, you wake up in a tent or maybe a camper that's not so good, and you're damp and you're cold, or you just takes the everything off the day. But today's units, There's just any weather, really, you can camp in, can't
4: you? Oh, yeah. No, it it doesn't slow anybody down now. It was kind of jarring to hear your prior guest talking about that dreaded S word, though. It's coming our way soon enough, I guess.
1: Oh, yeah. We we all know that. Hey, but um, I talk to the people at state parks all the time, and they said the campgrounds just aren't slowing down in the winter. I mean, they're they're slower, but the use just keeps climbing throughout the season. And that's Part of that is because today's units are so comfortable and self-contained, aren't they?
4: That's absolutely right. They're they're uh, comfort on wheels, no doubt about it. No matter where those wheels take you, uh, it's it's the way to go for sure.
1: So what else is going on at Adventure Camper, Ray?
4: Well, we're uh, we're kind of coming towards the end of our season. We do have uh, one camping trailer still left for rent over the weekend of the solar eclipse. So. if you're still itching to get up and see that. We do have one trailer left for rent for that, um, and we've got great deals on anybody that wants to buy a trailer. This is a great time of year to get a good deal on a on a trailer, and uh, our inventory is starting to recover a little bit, so we've got a little bit more to choose from.
1: Yeah, you're probably seeing the 18s are coming in, I would think, right?
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, we got more inventory coming in by the day, so our, our inventory is starting to heal up and giving uh, customers a little bit more to choose from.
1: But now when the main season slows down, you still rent campers, right?
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely, all the way through hunting season. So, um, uh, well, hunting season and ice fishing season beyond.
1: Well, yeah, I, I, ice fishing to me, I I love spending time on the ice. It's one of my biggest passions, but I also love being warm and comfortable when I get <laughs> off the ice.
4: So that's a good Very true. So, Very so true. How, how do
1: they find you, Ray?
4: Uh, We're at adventurecamper.com. If you want to come visit us, uh, we're near the intersection of Arapahoe Road and Jordan Road.
1: All right, sir. We will talk to you again next week. You have a good weekend. Thanks, Terry. You too. You bet. That's Ray from Adventure Campers. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest motorcycle and ATV dealer. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sportsman's Warehouse, America's Premier Outfitter. We're gonna go right to the phones now. And uh joining us from Parks and Wildlife and from Cheyenne Mountain State Park, we have Jeanette Lara. Good morning, Jeanette.
5: Hi, Terry. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Hey, um, you're at a really great park. You know, the state state parks has I think forty-two parks throughout throughout the region. And they all bring a little different in resources. Now you really don't have a water feature there, but I always like to say you're the only state park where you can be right on top of a NORAD command base. But you know, but exactly. but really, there's it's a great it's a great outdoor location, isn't it?
5: It sure is. I definitely think it's um, we're one of the best. But I might be a little biased there.
1: <laughs> Tell people where it's located and just kind of describe the park.
5: Sure. Um, Well, I definitely want to thank you first for having me back again. Um, So this park, um, like I've said before, we're down at the southwest corner of Colorado Springs. We're right across from Fort Carson, Um, just kind of nestled against what he said, Cheyenne Mountain. Um, You know, we are neighboring with Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Station. Um, And and then
1: you've got uh, camping. How many campsites do you have?
5: We have 61 total. So we're definitely on the smaller side when you think of campgrounds, but we do have some some great, you know, full hookup sites. You know, we, we really have some great facilities. We get excellent reviews on them, um, but we do fill up fast because we're smaller. So I encourage reservations.
1: And you have about 20 miles of trails, I think.
5: We do. We're over 20 miles, and we're still working on more um, getting that trail to the top of Cheyenne Mountain. So over 20 miles for hiking and biking.
1: And and actually, your trails, and especially when you get the the one you're working on complete, go through quite a change of elevation, don't they?
5: It certainly does. Um, We will have about 3,000 feet elevation gain when we're getting to the top of the mountain. Right now, it's maybe 500 or so on the trails that are just kind of nestled at the base.
1: And But it's so beautiful. And when you're down there, it's great wildlife viewing, too.
5: Oh, yes. Yeah. You're it's constantly seeing mule deer. Wild turkeys are out right now. Um, you know, we do, bobcat country, mountain lion, black bears. Now, those are rare sightings, but, you know, they're definitely there. You can see signs of them. You'll see bears scat along the trails. Um
1: I wonder how many people know how close they might be to mountain lions at sometimes because they are such a stealthy creature and usually don't want anything to do with people. but if you've got deer, we always say you've probably got mountain lions
3: exactly
1: hey, um, you got a speaking of deer and elk and hunting. You guys, um, well, this is something that's happening at a lot of parks around the state, and you guys have a great setup. You know, archery season is really only a couple weeks away, two, three weeks away. We're going to see, I think three weeks, uh, we're going to see archery season starting, and people need to practice. Now, you've got some static archery ranges, which we'll talk about in just a second. You've also got some 3D, which I think is fantastic. Let's start with the static ranges. What kind of archery ranges do you have on your static range?
5: Okay, so we have a 10- to 80-yard shooting lane, um, you know, covered shooting lane. Um, then we also have a limited draw range that's 35 pounds or less at 10- to 20-yard Um So that's our static range. The static range is included with the cost of your, you know, annual parks pass, um, you know, whether it be the $7 day pass, that's all included with your cost of the of the park pass.
1: Now, you also have a 3D range, and we have a saying on this show, the saying is stay ready, don't get ready to go hunting, stay ready. And that means planning your hunt, knowing the terrain you're gonna hunt, scouting it if you can. It also means knowing your equipment, whether it's rifle or shotgun, what kind of hunting, or your bows and archery. And you know, to sit in a static range and just practice and you've got that bullseye right there. Nate Zelensky, who's gonna be coming on here shortly, always talks about he shoots at a blank. Uh, target because he wants to have to pick the spot himself because the animals don't show up with a target on it. Now you have a tremendous 3D range. You really would suit this kind of practice.
5: Absolutely. So now that the you know the sights are dialed in, you know from the static range or however their method is for practicing, um, getting out on the field 3D range is a tremendous opportunity. You know it's um, they're located you know kind of in situ where the 3D animal is up on a hillside, there's, you know, scrub oak and pine trees surrounding you, you know, it's across the creek bed. Um, It really does, you know, challenge the shooter, you know, again, with the animals, they they don't have targets on them. (laughs) Um, But you can kind of see they're situated, you know, maybe facing you or facing away or, you know, kind of turned a little bit differently. And we do try to change that up on a fairly regular basis.
1: Well, that really, and that really changes the shot. It's a whole different shot when the animal's angle to you is different. And when you're shooting at a 3D figure that doesn't have a target on it, because a lot of people have to learn to focus on that point that where they think they should hit. And without a target for some people, it's difficult. I'm a huge believer in practicing in the 3D ranges. What, um what is, there is a little bit of an additional cost. What do you charge for that?
5: There is. So, if you're down there just for the day, it would be a $3 individual permit. Um, that's going to be required for anyone 17 years and older. Um, 16 and younger is free. Um, so, again, a $3 day permit. We do have an annual permit that's available, and that's actually what I'm hoping to kind of encourage folks to do today. Um, if you come out during the month of August and purchase that annual, so the annual is $30. So, with that same, you know, 10 times makes it worth that kind of thing. Um so for the annual permit, if you purchase it during the month of August, we're going to give you a free archery sticker, you know, from Cheyenne Mountain State Park. And it's a it's a pretty cool sticker. So I would like to just kind of get that out there that, you know, for $30, get your annual. You can come out here and shoot as much as you would like to get ready for the upcoming season. Um, and then even through the winter, like you said, stay ready.
1: All right, one more thing before we let you go. I know you wanted to mention that, and it's kind of apropos that you're mentioning it because you're by all those military bases, and that's the fact that veterans uh do have a special deal for veterans get in the park, don't we?
5: Yeah, so again, August is an exciting month um it's military appreciation month for whether it's active duty, reserved, retired, you know any veteran status uh service member can come in, get a free hang tag as entrance into all Colorado State Parks. So the combination here, you know, you get the free you know, entrance pass, you know, for a military service member, and then you get the $30 annual pass, you get your free sticker, and you're set up for the whole month of August, whether it be for archery or just to come enjoy. We have tons of programs. We have a great program on August 12th. There's just always something to do at the Colorado State Parks.
1: Jeanette, thank you for joining us. Hopefully a lot of people will get there and take advantage of uh, of Cheyenne Mountain State Park.
5: Oh, thank you so much for having me again. You,
1: you bet. T- Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sportsman's Warehouse, America's premier outfitter. It's Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoke Fish Company's Honey Smoke Salmon. It's just unbelievably delicious. The secret is in the fire.
5: It's time now for Terry's Tackle Tip of the
1: Week. All right, it is time for our Tackle Tip of the Week. And joining us for our Tackle Tip, come calling in early so we can steal more of his time, our, from uh, Tight Line Outdoors, Nate Zelinsky. Good morning, Nate. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? I'm doing well. And uh, last week, Nate, I did a tackle talk on monofilament line. You know, a lot of times we cover all the lines at once, but I thought we'd kind of break them down a little bit and where you use the different lines. And Last week I said that I still believe that for the beginner and the casual fisherman and looking at what it costs and how forgiving it is that monofilament, I mean, is still one of the best fishing lines you can buy. But if you want to step up, especially in certain situations, there are a number of super lines and fluorocarbon and different for different applications. And today I want to talk about nanofil, which to me is just a revolutionary fishing line. Do you use nanofil, Nate?
0: Absolutely, Terry. You know, and I, I think, like we talked about, talked about ICAST. You know, a couple of weeks ago, how he said how everything is becoming very specie and more so technique specific. You know, the whole industry is gearing towards that, and that's where Nano really has its place as as one of the most revolutionary lines out there for for a lot of different reasons. Um, and there's a lot of different applications. I think you see. Different applications per angler. Um, I mean, right now is our nanofill time of year for myself and Tightline Outdoors. We're fishing shallow water rainbows at Spinning Mountain Reservoir right now. These fish are feeding on bugs. They're in, you know, two to four feet of water in literally crystal clear water. So all of a sudden where the fly angler is really having an advantage over the conventional tackle person, we can go in there with a really light nanofill and we can fish small presentations, small jigs, small little crankbaits everything on that more natural level and present almost like a fly angler, um, but still have castability that's giving us the advantage as if we get our boat or even wade too close to these fish, they're gone in this clear water. So castability is everything, and that's where that nanofill really is excelling this time of year for us.
1: And for folks out there that don't know what Nanofil is, it's a line by Berkeley. You know, you're used to hearing about monofilaments and fluorocarbons. You hear about the braids, which are the super lines braided together with different strands in them. And then you hear about things like fire line, which is kind of a fused braid. It's still a braided line, but it's fused into one piece. Nanofil's difference because it's a single fiber, fiber. It's by far the thinnest diameter of any of the super lines. It, and because of that, Nate was alluding to, it just casts a mile. Um, there are some pluses and minuses to it, Nate. Um, one of the things with Nanofil, when you get used to it, it's a super line it has got very high breaking strength, but because it's so small, it can be susceptible to a little bit of abrasion.
0: Absolutely. You know, I mean, anytime that you, you, you know, you want to get taken and, and give, you know, in that type of relationship, you want that
2: extreme
0: castability and that, that overall lightweight feel. Sometimes you have to get rid of some of that that abrasion resistance. That's going to be a material they add into that line. It basically is going to make it stiffer. It's going to take away from that castability. Uh, so again, it, it's definitely situational in which you're using it. But in the times that you are using it, it's absolutely incredible. Again, for us, our main you know mainstay with NanoFill is lighter baits and castability, and that's where we can present a, a presentation far better than any other tool out there as far as the lines concerned.
1: Well, a lot of my light uh, light ultralight and light spinning is done on nanofill. Now I, I, and it goes from two to 17 pounds. When I get up to about 12 or 14 pounds, I personally switch over to Fireline. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come, but in that I'd say four to 12 pound range. I use the nanofill, but you know, uh, Twelve pound nanofil probably has a diameter of four pound test line. It's so thin. So a couple of things you want to tell people. One is you don't have to it's gonna be a little more expensive than mono. Mono, you can get a spool of mono for maybe four or five dollars. A spool of nanofil is probably gonna be fifteen or twenty dollars, but you don't have to fill the reel. You can get a smaller spool, leave a mono base on there, so you want your line out close, but it casts a mile, is what it really does. And you alluded to the fact too that I can take little jigs, almost ice fishing jig size, and cast them a significant distance with nanofill and get that presentation out away from the shore away from the boat in fact shore anglers that need to get that cast out further it can really shine for them nate
0: absolutely you know in other type situations as a as a troll fisherman you know again i i love trolling and well, he give you a hard time for that. I don't troll necessarily because I want to be lazy. I troll because I want to have bait control. And there's going to be a TV show, Aaron, later this fall of our mutual friend Doug Stangy and I up uh, lake trout fishing. And we were actually trolling with 17-pound nanofill. That was our line of choice. And the idea behind using this line was we could troll at a greater depth. So all of a sudden, we, could, we were fishing shallow waters with big lake trout. But as, as later in the day, as the sun got high and the fish slid off deeper, that nanofill allowed us to troll much deeper than like a mono. Filament. So let's say you're talking 17 pound mono versus 17 pound nanofill. We're diving 45% deeper with nanofill. So we're taking a bait that with mono would say tap out at about 20 feet in depth using big, giant, like flatfish and quickfish, uh, these big bullheads that could dive deeper. And with nanofill, we can get that bait down to, you know, again, 38 feet, something like that. So we're getting so much significance on the dive curve. It allowed us to not switch out rods. Instead of having to switch to like a lead core, switch to a downer put on a snap weight we had one rod one reel one line and we were fishing anywhere from four feet of water to 40 feet of water so again situations like that where we're using that thin diameter to our benefit it cuts through the water column faster and allows us to have greater diving depths which really simplifies the day and allows us more time to fish and build
1: patterns now i occasionally not all the time because because nanofill is so light and small but very often i'll put a mono or a fluorocarbon leader on it do you do that
0: you know it really depends on situation. If I'm in very clear water, generally speaking, yes, we do. Uh, in a situation of the water's being somewhat stained, uh, a lot of times that line is so thin we can get by by tying direct. So if I have say, windy conditions of spinning, kind of a darker surface, I'll tie directly on. And if I'm in a situation where it's, you know, super calm and clear, I tie a leader on.
1: Yeah, and occasionally I'll put a leader on just because if I'm in an abrasive area, that leader will hold up to the abrasion just a little bit better. And it's easy for a lot of people to tie a knot in a mono or fluorocarbon leader where they have yep. to learn some other knots. Um, but a lot of times I tie directly, too, Is even pan fishing, because if I'm using four-pound nanofill, it's so so thin that it's almost invisible. It does come in three colors. They have what they call the there's the stealth or the low vis color, green. There's the crystal or the it's kind of uh it's kind of a translucent. It's not clear, but it lets light pass through it. And then there's the um high vis uh, yellow or chartreuse, and they all have their uses. I use a lot of the crystal one. Um, I, the high-vis is really good. A lot of people can't see their line otherwise, and this line is thin, and line watching is such an important part of fishing. But I think I choose the the white one or the crystal-looking one myself a lot just because it, it does have some clarity in the water, so it does, and it is so small, it is difficult to see. If I'm really not going to use the leader and I'm in an intense situation, I might go to the low viz. How do you decide? You know, that? I, I'm
0: back and forth, right? The, the Laker show that we did, we were using that, uh, the the clear one, which basically comes out white, you know, from a distance. Uh, and then the, most times I'm actually using the what they call the flame green, which is the chartreuse. Um, I'm using that mainly for the fact that I think it's so key to watch that line. So we're fishing against. Super light baits You're fishing small, tiny jigs, and we're making these long casts, you know, relative to using light gear. You know, so we're casting 100, 120 feet um, with this line, even further sometimes, and we're really trying to watch that. So a lot of times, these rainbows at spinny will grab a bait and they're swimming so fast, they'll push the bait toward us or they'll push the bait to the side. But a lot of times, it's almost setting the hook on a slack line as the fish is not going away from us in any fashion. So we do end up doing a lot of line watching, and that really can help with that flame green line. But again, in the, in the right situation um, a lot of times that line would be too bright for the average situation. So you have to either add a leader, or go down to, to like the, that green line that they offered that should be a little bit more stealthy. Um, but again, most times I'm going to have that flame green tied on just because I want to have that control. I want the guests on our boat as customers uh, to be able to see both feel and see the bite and to make the, you know, capitalizing the most opportunities at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, a couple more points I want to cover, and um, one of those is we didn't talk about like all super lines, Nanofill has virtually zero stretch, so your your sensitivity – is just incredible, but it also means you're giving you're getting tight on that hook immediately. You might need to set your drag down a little bit, go to a softer rod to kind of protect the knot or protect from ripping hooks out of fish's mouth. And then the other thing, what knots do you use with nanofill? I've got a couple of choices. What do you like? You
0: know the the biggest thing if I'm tying just directly to the bait, I'm using a, a uni knot. Uh the biggest thing I do when I do a uni knot, um, is a lot of times I will tie a single overhand knot on the very tip of my tag in, then I'll tie my uni and I'll actually slide it together to where I hit that overhand knot, uh, just because nanofill tends to be just a little bit slippery. So there's not really a, a knot named for what I'm doing, but I'm using a uni, but I'm actually backing it with, uh, with a single overhand knot on my tag in I slide them together to act as a stopper. Uh, The biggest thing that we do on our leader to line connection, this is probably the most important thing, is I actually double my nanofill and then I go into my double uni. Uh, But I double my nanofill to prevent that line slip. A lot of people tie a regular double uni, which is probably the most common for line to leader, uh, not out there. The biggest thing is on your nanofill side, double it up. So double yourself up six, eight inches, and then go into your your regular double uni. Uh, But your nano is going to be doubled in that. Situation to prevent any slipping uh, it 'll prevent any headaches that you have with it
1: and I use the same knot to put line to leader the double nanofill with uh, uni to uni um, personally with all my super lines, I tie a knot called the San Diego jam, but most people aren 't going to know how to tie that. But there is a couple of great knots out there, one of them on Berkeley's website for nanofill. It's like a polymer with an extra loop. You go through twice and then over the hook. Tremendous line for a tremendous knot, and that's demonstrated on Berkeley's website if you go to berkeleyfishing.com. Nate, we're out of time. We're going to put you on hold and bring you back after the top of the hour. Perfect. All right. That was Nate Zelensky helping us with our tackle talk. Our tackle talk today was nanofill. I hope you enjoyed that and understand there are situations where this can be one of the best lines out there. It's, uh, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoked Salmon. The secret is in the fire.